to Peds Ortho, the official POSNA podcast. I'm Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans, and I'm here with the usual crew, and we have two very special guests this evening. Uh, we are on the line currently with Dr. Ron L. Hawari and Dr. Carl Logan. They are partners up in Halifax. Uh, they both practice at IWK Health Center, where Dr. L. Hawari is the chief of orthopedics, and they are also both on the faculty of Dalhousie University. And Dr. Logan is the senior author, and Dr. El Hawari is also one of the authors on the paper we're going to be focusing on tonight. It's in this month's JPO episode. It's called Femoral Neck Growth and Remodeling with Free Gliding Screw Fixation of Skiffy. Really important paper moving the field forward, looking at a telescoping screw that allows some motion and growth across the physis when you pin a skiffy. It's from Pega Medical. And we are going to get into that. But first, let's check in with my co-hosts. As always, we've got Craig Lauer, Vanderbilt, Josh Holt, Iowa, and Julia Sanders, Children's Hospital, Colorado. Craig, any, any updates on the move from North Carolina to Tennessee? Um, I moved. <laughs> no it's no more done. updates. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Finally settled. Josh, what is uh what's new out there in Iowa? First spring football practice is coming up next weekend. So everyone's excited to get back into some football. Excellent. Has it thought has it thawed out? Has the tundra thawed up there? Oh, we are well into spring now. Okay. All right. And uh, and Julia, any good skiing lately, or is that is that is it over for the year? Uh, well, there's there's still some places open. I'm happy that a lot of places are closing now because uh, hopefully our our volume uh, will start to go down a little bit. We got absolutely crushed by ski season this year. Did you get to to do some crushing during ski season? Also, though, I, I did my fair sh- fair share of crushing. Yes, I did. It was great. Uh, one awesome. year post ACL, and I got uh, 24 days in. There you go. Oh my goodness. Should 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 we, should we do this? What what kind of ACL did you get? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I did a patellar BTV and I, I was March 27th of 2020 was my surgery date. And I started skiing on December 18th, uh, which was maybe a little sooner than my surgeon would have wanted, but I was careful. <laughs> I, I wore a brace and, uh, yeah, I will, I will say donor, uh, site graft pain is real. Uh, that anterior knee pain still has not quite gone away. So wow. I'm looking forward to the day that I can kneel again, if ever, but we'll see. <laughs> and you didn't say, did ski. you do the Don Shelbourne contralateral BTB or the ipsilateral? I did ipsilateral. Bad times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Um, well, before we dive into the material, uh, the annual meetings coming up, we're excited. If you're going to be there, uh, we hope you will come by. We're going to be recording a live session on uh, Wednesday at noon or about 12.15, so immediately following the pre-course. It'll be right down the hall, so uh, please stop by on your way out and uh, hang out for, for the session. And Craig, do we have any updates for this month for the status of the podcast? Um, we do. So I did a check this morning to look at our recent listens and Dr. Sankar's episode from March got up to 587 listens as of this morning. Um, so that's close to his goal of 600. Um, we kind of forced him to make a goal of 600 to try and match Dr. Sanders and Dr. Lane. So as you can tell, I'm trying to drive some competition here, uh, some healthy competition. So 
<laughs> so Ron and Carl, uh, you're up. Um, anyone want to throw down the gauntlet for uh, how many people you're going to get interested in your, your version of the <laughs> podcast? <laughs> and then uh, we did have some feedback. So I want to thank Will Morris, who's a junior faculty at TSRH. His name is kind of all over the POSNA program this year, I've noticed as I've gone through it and uh, recent journal publications we keep up with. Uh, Will reached out and just said that he's been listening intently from the beginning and really enjoys tuning in on his drive to and from work. He appreciates hearing the roundtable discussion of how a paper may or may not influence our practice. And he says, as another young staff member, I specifically wanted to praise the pearls of wisdom sections during the interviews with the guests. The dive into Woody Sankar's thoughts on managing DDH was fascinating and informative for myself and probably a lot of other younger staff as we try and formulate our own algorithms. Um, so keep up the great work and thank you from Will Morris. So I think that that just means that um, from Ron and Carl, our esteemed guests today, we want as much pearls as you can provide because um, <laughs> there are people listening and um, apparently uh, trying to follow what we do here. And I'll, I'll set our goal. I would like to see uh, 100 listens out of Canada for, for this month's episode. <laughs> Very nice. All right. Um, so uh, a little segue there. Our, our guests, we're very lucky to have two visiting professors, so to speak, on the program tonight. Um, and we're going to spend our first few minutes just getting to know them. First up, Ron El-Hawari, would you mind just telling us a little bit about where you grew up and how you got from there to here? Yeah, for sure, Carter. Th- thank uh, you and, and the rest of the host for, for having Carl and I on. It's a bit of a Canadian invasion, and I love your target number of 100 Canadian listeners. We, we have a Canadian pediatric orthopedic group, and I think there's 103 members, so we'll try to get them all on. You know, <laughs> Challenge accepted. This podcast. <laughs> awesome. So Halifax is, is my hometown. Uh, Mom and dad uh, were both um, uh, engineering uh, professors, and uh, that's what got me interested uh, in, uh, in engineering, first of all, and, and from engineering, uh, in biomechanics and ultimately in orthopedic surgery. Uh, went to Texas Scottish Rite for, for fellowship, and then have been back in Halifax now for 15 years. Excellent. Well, we are delighted to have you. Next up, Dr. Carl Logan, uh, would you mind sort of giving us a little bit about your your background? Yeah, sure. Thanks uh, for the invite uh, tonight, Carter, and the group. Uh, it's a pleasure to come and speak to you. So obviously, I don't have a Canadian accent. I'm originally <laughs> from, the, uh, from the UK. I was born in Newcastle up on Tyne. In fact, I could see St. James's Park from my bedroom window, which is where the Toon Army or Newcastle United play soccer and could hear them on a clear night, for sure. I then uh, went and did my undergraduate uh, in Liverpool at the medical school there. And in fact, orthopedics was the only clinical subject that I failed at medical school. So <laughs> I had to spend a glorious summer resitting it. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I think I failed actually on the assessment of the Trendelenburg test when it came to my, my final exam. Um, and then uh, from, Med- from Liverpool, I went to Norwich. I had no interest in orthopedics, uh, certainly after failing it. Uh, but in Norwich, uh, that was where McKee had worked and popularized the metal on metal hip. And they really enthused me into orthopedic practice. Um, and my interest in PEDS sparked there too, where I saw an open reduction in anomalous osteotomy of the hip. And I thought that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And so I decided I wanted to do pediatric orthopedics uh, at that time. Uh, so then I moved on uh, to London and East Anglia, and I developed a bit more of an interest in, in hip surgery there. Uh, Dennis Dunn had worked at Black Notley, uh, which had become the Chelmsford Hospital, and got to see some of his old cine films of a femoral neck shortening and done osteotomy for uh, slipped capital femoral epiphysis, and got to see his uh, the person who replaced him do some of those surgeries uh, 
apparently a black notley when he started doing those surgeries that when it rained, the water would pull through the OR ceiling and to keep the temperature right <laughs> in the OR, they'd have the window open. So uh, the, that hospital had wow. closed by the time I did my rotational training. I, I went to Toronto and did my fellowship there. And while in Toronto, I, I worked for Jim Wright and uh, he's a Haligonian and, and he knew that uh, Ron and the group were looking for a colleague and that a hip interest uh, may fit in well and uh, the rest history. Fantastic. So um, a few questions just to let the audience get to know you. Um, Carl, what is your favorite surgery to see on the schedule when you're heading into work? Uh, my favorite surgery right now is probably hip arthroscopy. Four or five years ago, I started doing hip arthroscopy. It was a huge challenge to start that particular surgery in practice. It's technically very challenging. And I, I still find it challenging, even after having done a number of cases over the last four years. Uh, but I, I think that's probably my favorite case right now to see on the schedule. Very cool. I, I think that is definitely the first time we've heard that answer to that question, and uh, I won't hold my breath for the next one. <laughs> Ron, what about you? What's uh, what's your favorite procedure? Uh, you know what? I really enjoy uh, doing thoracoscopic work, uh, anterior spine surgery. Um, I remember seeing my first uh, open anterior spines as, as a resident, and then uh, working with uh, uh, Dan Sicato as a fellow, learning thoracoscopic uh, techniques back then. He was doing releases. He was doing fusions uh, through the scope, and we had great training in it. And I've always been very um, kind of intrigued with the anatomy anteriorly. And uh, once I started practice, I had a chance uh, through an SRS fellowship to visit Peter Newton to see his technique as well. You know, those two mentors had always uh, kind of told me that vertebral body tethering would, was on the horizon, you know, within the next few years, keep up your scope skills so you can start doing VBTs. And and I certainly do some vertebral body tethering, but I also do, do a fair number of uh, scope releases and uninstrumented anterior fusions for, you know, young kids with, uh, to prevent crankshaft. And that's probably my favorite procedure would be a, a thoracoscopic release followed by posterior spinal fusion and, uh, and instrumentation. Um, I have one coming up this Friday and, you know, I, I can't wait. Great answer. And, uh, I mean, I think this gives us, uh, us and all the uh, listeners a real idea of the sort of caliber of your institution. Two favorite procedures are two very niche things that are really sort of leading the field into the future. So that's great. The uh, IVK Health Center is the um, only kind of tertiary care standalone peach hospital in uh, the maritime provinces of Canada. So that includes Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, and New Brunswick. So even though Halifax is a city of about half a million people, we have a fairly uh, large geographic uh, catchment area. Um, so we got all our bases covered in terms of, uh, of what we treat uh, uh, in Halifax. Another question that we often ask our guests that I'd be particularly interested to hear about the uh, Canadian pronunciation. Do you say Posna or Posna? Dr. Logan, do you want to take this uh, one on well, first? Say, you, you might have the British pronunciation. Yeah, well, I would say Posna. Posna as well. You? All right. Two yeah, Posnas. Posna. Yeah. <laughs> That is the right answer, actually. <laughs> <laughs> we found it's very generational, and going forward, uh, the Posnas are, are, are fading out, I think. So, uh, so Carl and I are in the younger generation with our answer. You are, absolutely. Fantastic, fantastic. The leaders of the I younger generation. You guys. <laughs> Any more questions for our guests, or should we, should we dive into this article? Let's dive. All right. Ivan, the first article, the one we're really going to focus on the most, is one brought to you by both of our guests as authors in the recent uh, JPO issue. It's entitled Femoral Neck Growth and Remodeling with Free Gliding Screw Fixation of Skiffy. Carl Logan is the senior author. Basically, the group studied stable skiffies that were treated with a, a relatively new implant, a telescoping screw 
The study looked at 16 patients, all with bilateral pinning. So overall, 32 hips, a little more than half, 19 were stable slips and 13 were prophylactically pinned. And then the authors compared these hips to 102 hips that were treated with standard screws. And so they found that these free gliding screws seemed to work because uh, one, the skiffy hips remodeled significantly more when they were fixed with the free gliding device, specifically the alpha angle, so that cam deformity tended to improve by about 12 degrees versus 4 degrees in those hips with standard screws. And then second, for the prophylactic hips, when they were fixed with standard screws, they seemed to stop growing like you would expect. And um, over the next two years, they would lose about five millimeters of height. And then the ones fixed with the free gliding screw seem to continue to grow and maintain their height. So I think the, the big question is, are you guys using this routinely now? And, and, and is that in, in some of the skippies and all the skippies? It's, um, it's gone full circle a little bit. You know, this is um, the, this um, implant from Pega Medical. It's a Canadian company, sticking with our Canadian theme uh, today. <laughs> they developed the fascia de Val rod. So Fra- Francois Fascia had a, had a hand in developing this. You know, our, our institution uh, started using this in 2014, and, and Carl and uh, and our partner, uh, Ben Orlick, uh, were, I think, uh, among the first uh, anywhere to, to use the implant and decided to kind of study it uh, kind of going forward. And at the beginning, I was I was a little skeptical as in terms of what might happen, and I was only using it for the younger kids or maybe the, the, the uh, bilateral where you really want to ensure the growth uh, continues. My two partners and, and then Luke Goche, who joined us later, uh, they were doing it on most people, and then I kind of joined in uh, over time. Uh, when I saw their results, their very promising early results, so I kind of hopped on the bandwagon. And then, you know, once we studied it, our graduating resident Kevin Morash worked with uh, with Carl as his mentor to to study this. And uh, just a quick plug for Kevin: he's going to Dupont for for a fellowship for a year, and hopefully, we'll get him back to Canada thereafter. Um, but I think once he started looking at at those uh, results. I think we're able to fine tune who we um, implant these um, these screws in now compared to to before. Uh, maybe I'll hand it over to Carl to go into more of those details because he's doing the bulk of these. Perfect. Sure, Ron. Uh, so I mean, the study, the average age of the patient in the study was around twelve years. So I mean, pretty standard presenting age population, uh, stable slips. The results of the study support using it in patients with the stable slips and and with the milder slips. If you want to maintain your femoral head and neck anatomy, then uh, the study also supports using them in for prophylactic pinning in the uh, on the unslipped side. So the, the the study also has pretty strong data to support uh, maintenance of your articular trochanteric distance uh, on the non-slipped side. You know, one of the concerns has always been in in using a growth sparing device on the prophylactic side is you know the potential leg length discrepancy that we might create. Uh, rather than a, a growth fusion technique or biseal fusion technique with a with a regular screw, and uh, we we really didn't find that that was significant in the group of patients that we that we studied that the the leg length discrepancy was negligible. So who's getting these screws now? Uh, obviously, the study was looking at the mild slips. Are, are moderate and more severe slips also getting pinned in situ with these? Yeah, I mean, uh, we so there's probably still a slight difference uh, in in practice uh, within the group. I, I would say uh, the majority of us are using the free gliding hip screw in. Well, I, I typically use them in all comers. Ron can perhaps speak to to, to his approach, which might be a little more uh, conservative uh, than that. 
there are some technical limitations, and one one of them has been screw length. So if you do if you do have a, a more uh, a moderate or severe slip that you're hoping to pin, you know, I think the minimal minimum screw lengths around uh, 48 millimeters. And so if you're looking at a shorter screw than that, then sometimes you have to default to to a regular cannulated screw. There's also we also kind of make the point in the paper. There's also some 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 technical challenges with the the free gliding hip screw, partly because of its design and the more flexible guide wire. It can be a little more challenging, particularly if you're looking for an anterior start on the prophylactic side, which is always more challenging. But yeah, I I, I think mechanically they've been proven as being satisfactory from previous work from uh, David Little. And for myself personally, I can't see any significant downside to their use over a regular screw. That's great. And I definitely want to get into sort of some of those technical features um, so we can capitalize on your expertise with these a little bit while we've got you on the line. But um, what about unstable slips? Is that different or are, these, are you using these for uh, those patients as well? I don't think any of our group has used them in an unstable slip. I think our preference in an unstable slip would still be to go with a regular regular screw. Or two, I personally, I would use two screws in an unstable slip. But yeah, great. Is that you on? Yeah, same here. Uh, two screws for an unstable hip, uh, regular cannulated screws. And then in terms of who to um, utilize the FG screw in with a stable slip, I would just stick to the the mild uh, head shaft angle. I, I think that the study shows less screw uh, elongation, which would mean less uh, growth of the neck in the more moderate uh, slips, greater than a 30-degree head shaft angle. But the paper also showed that despite that, there are some benefits with with remodeling, looking at uh, at offset and alpha angle. So it depends on how you look at it. And, you know, Carl knows the the hip so well from his work in the uh, the scope and does a lot of work on uh, uh, FAI. I think that's probably huge benefits uh, to try to decrease the uh, the potential for FAI, FAI down the road with with that type of remodeling. And speaking of FAI down the road, are, would you take out these screws routinely when the patient's skeletally mature? And are there any sort of pitfalls in terms of taking these out versus taking out a standard screw? Um, you know, if you're if you are addressing their FAI down the road. Yeah, that's a that's a good question. So a couple of things. So. One of the things we've found with scoping is that often your anterior entry, even if you feel that you're staying at the level of your of your intertrochanteric line laterally, still the obliquity of the screw often still produces a, a threaded shaft part of the screw that's more likely to impinge the anterior femur and, and abrade the labrum. And certainly with these screws, they have a larger a large head diameter, and the head is threaded, and it engages into the cortex. So we have had some instances of impingement with the screw head, mm-hmm. uh, which has not necessarily been. I mean, it's been identified clinically, but radiographically, you would think that your entry was satisfactory and far enough uh, distal in the neck that it wouldn't do that. But in matter of fact, dynamically through the scope, you can see impingement. Yeah, that was my question. Is it's certainly the study published at Rady by Dr. Posny and Dr. Wang are really showing the impingement if you get proximal to that intertrochanteric line. I actually stay much distal to it, even if it means I'm not at a perpendicular entry into the epiphysis, just to prevent that impingement. And with the with the bigger screw head threading into the to the cortex, there, I was going to ask if you've seen that you do get more impingement with this screw. I wouldn't say more, but I would say. You know, I do tend to see a significant amount of impingement from skiffy screws with an anterior start. So I think the anterior start helps. Obviously, you need an anterior start if you've got a moderate or severe slip. You can't get into the 
into the epiphysis uh, without starting anteriorly in the neck. But I'm not. Sh- I'm a little bit uncertain as to kind of the the teaching at the moment about avoiding more lateral entry to avoid potential periprosthetic uh, fracture or fracture related to the screw. I think we might be causing some some impingement issues by taking that approach. Mm-hmm. Um, the other issue was screw removal. And um, no, I would say in terms of screw removal, the set's fairly well instrumented. There is a there is a screw cap that you can put in. I don't tend to use it. Um, usually you do leave the, leave the head prominent. Um, and I would say the instrumentation is fairly robust for screw removal. But unless the patient's symptomatic, I don't routinely remove the screws, which you know we may find in 20 or 30 years' time that our adult colleagues are complaining about these strange... and the the proximal femur that they're having to take out to do hip arthroplasty on well great um the next question i'd love to hear from both of you guys just a little bit about your experience with the learning curve there's always something you don't anticipate that can go wrong when when you're trying something new what what kind of struggles did you come across when you started using these screws you know, when you when you read a technique guide and you first learn the, the technique, you know, it seems very straightforward, just like putting in a regular cannulated uh, screw. It's um, a bit of a flimsy guide wire, as Carl mentioned. I think uh, there have been a couple of instances in our institution where, where the guide wire is broken uh. kind of uh, interoperatively, and, and then that's a bit of a struggle to kind of get a different start point and, and avoid that. And then there's uh, the, the screw length that, uh, that Carl had talked about, and it took us a while to kind of figure out the lower limit for the screw length that we can use. And um, the, uh, the company has been very uh, responsive to feedback uh, from our group, and, and they have developed some shorter screws, uh, some mini-sized screws that we can use. Um, so there was a bit of a learning curve early on, and it was more related to it being such a new device back in 2014, 2015, and I think a lot of those issues have, have been overcome. Again, I had the benefit of watching these guys uh, for a couple of years before before I did any. So that really helped me out uh, quite a bit at a very uh, short learning curve learning from them. So I suspect that new users of this device uh, will pick it up fairly quickly. What do you think, Carl? Any any bad moments that come to mind in the <laughs> OR? <laughs> Always. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I want to share them all. <laughs> I got to leave in half an hour, Carl. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I was relying on senior colleague, colleagues before. Right? Um, yeah, I'd agree with Ron. The, the guide wire, certainly compared to the 2.8 on the 7.3 cannulated, is is flimsy. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a trocar in the set that you can insert the guide wire through, which I'd probably recommend using when you're starting off with the set. Uh, it helps in terms of your start point. It helps in directing the wire, and when you get your you know, we we uh, pin freehand, not on traction. So when you get your frog lateral, you can use the trocar to stop the wire bending. And uh, the other point is with the reamer. I think because of the design of the of the screw and the reamer, you only ream uh, and drill uh, drill and ream to the physis. You stop short, so the the screw kind of cuts itself into the epiphysis. Um, the reamer um, is it's pretty slow going, and. Uh, it takes time to get there and you need to take it out probably four or five times during drilling to clean the swarf hmm. at the end of the reamer. And you need to change it regularly to, to, to maintain a sharp reamer. Oh, that's a good pearl. Um, yeah. All, that feedback's been given to the, to, the, to the company for sure. Yeah. A question for my co-hosts. So totally without any numbers to support this, I would assume Julia does the most skiffies. 
Julia, what, what, do you, what do you think? It's, do you have hesitations about switching to this kind of implant, or what do you think? It, you know, no. I mean, I, I was actually going to ask if any of you guys here in the U.S. have used it. I, I'm really excited about this, and I was actually writing an email to our uh, my hip partner, right, like as we were talking, um, like, what do you think about this? Can we get this? Can we try it out? Um, and I, I think I'm a pretty, in general, pretty quick adopter, happy to try new things. And I think this is a super exciting thing to look into. Uh, I do pin a lot of skiffies. I also have the benefit of having a partner who is extremely facile with the modified done procedure and will follow all of our skiffies. Um, and so I get to pin them and then sort of send them to her. And she's awesome. But I think I I have definitely seen some challenging ones where they do get, uh, you know, they end up really short. And I would love to to have an opportunity to have them grow a little bit more normally. And, you know, I think as we've talked about a little bit, the impingement thing, I mean, I think no matter what device you use or really what it looks like, you're going to cause some impingement. And those patients are, are not going to like it kind of no matter what. So I would be super excited to try this. And as we've talked about, you always have hesitation and you know you're going to look bad the first few times you do something new. Um, and I think I've just sort of gotten over that. I just uh, give it my best shot. And uh, as you get more comfortable, then you know, hopefully it goes well, but I'm really excited by this. I think, I think I'll sign up to, to get on board with this and see if my hip partner uh, would be interested in, in getting it over and trying it. Say so Josh looks totally unenthused over there. So I feel like we should kick it to him next to bring us back down there. <laughs> my question is, you know, for, with, for the prophylactically fixed side, I just haven't seen issues and your study shows, you know, that extra few millimeters of length. I, I haven't seen nor read of or heard of issues with shortened distances on the prophylactically pinned side to know if that that's worth it. My real question is, you know, the most deformity and the most shortening that you see is with the high grade unstable that you do in an open reduction or a modified done or whatever your approach is that those are the hips that are the most deformed. So I'd be curious to see, you know, two free gliding screws stabilizing after an open reduction, because those are the ones that I think you see the most deformity and potentially could get the most benefit from. That was a challenge. That was a direct challenge, I believe. I mean, have you guys tried it? I don't don't think I want that. I don't want that physis to grow if it's my unstable slip. I'll tell you that much. I just want to close it down and deal with with the repercussions later. Um, You know, I I did, I think, one or two of these in fellowship um, with Dr. Upasani, and I thought the idea was intriguing. I actually, I was thinking about it from the length standpoint. I remember particularly there were young kids. I hadn't even really considered the fact that it's going to allow better remodeling. Um, I think that's the real attractive thing for me at this point. When you have a mild one, you're not as much concerned about continuing the slip, uh, you know, if you were really tied to, you know, the screws and what you used to do. So, you know, maybe try something new in those and you might get the growth out of it and you can avoid a secondary procedure and impingement. I think that's a really cool application of this. The reason I haven't done it in practice yet is that uh, they're kind of hard to get. You know, when we do Fosse Duvall's at both places I've been, you got to call ahead. You got to tell them what sizes you need. You got to get it down there. And Skiffy is generally not a procedure I'm knowing about a week ahead of time. I might be from residency when when uh, Gordon uh, would tell me that he sent us a, a stable slip, uh, stable Skiffy home at one point, um, or you know told him to go from clinic to the ER or whatever it was, and they tripped and fell and went from stable to unstable. And uh, maybe that's just lore that's passed along <laughs> to every resident. So we treat those things seriously. But I never let them, once they're in my clinic with a stable skiffy, unless there's some extenuating circumstance, I don't let them leave the hospital until they're pinned. 
So I can't get one of these screws in that amount of time, generally speaking. Craig, I'm with, I'm with you. Um, you know, I think we've all heard the, the uh, kind of uh, lore over the years uh, in, in different places. And, and I saw it with my own eyes once, a patient that was admitted on the ward and uh, the, somebody let the, the kid get up to go to the bathroom and it turned into an unstable right there on our hospital ward. And, um, you know, so it can happen. I think the availability of the implants is better than getting the um, the FD rods because you can get a kit with all the different sizes that you'd ever need, and it could be you could keep it right in your hospital. I think with the FD, you kind of have to template ahead of size and kind of narrow it down to one or two different sizes to bring down. So I don't I don't think that's um, unsurmountable. I think you you, you do have that potential to, to get a kit in there if you're if you're interested. And I think you guys hit the nail right in the head. I think it's probably more about the remodeling that, than than the growth and when I was looking at this, uh, uh, when Carl had started the project, um, you know, I was really interested in, in maintaining that uh, femoral neck growth and avoiding uh, greater trochanteric uh, overgrowth. And I don't know if the screws are, are really doing that, um, uh, except for the really, really mild ones. But it's the remodeling. I think that's really intriguing to me. I'm, I'm with you completely. I'm, I'm enthusiastic about these because to my simple bone doctor brain, this makes a lot of sense. Let the, let the thing keep growing if you can. I think I'm going to probably start trying them. You know, we've been going back and forth at our institution about whether we should be addressing these CAM deformities early. I'll give a quick shout out to our sort of sister podcast, Pede Sports. We just recorded a hip episode last night and had a long conversation about these mild skiffies and um, a recent study that was, uh, I think it was from Zurich, where they were scoping them after 10 days routinely and uh, showing really good results out to five years, basically preventing the CAM and hopefully preventing the resultant osteoarthritis. So I think this is a really cool option if we could do this and spare that scope and it would remodel on its own after two years. That would, that would be a huge win and uh, could really you know, add another option to that, that decision tree. I did do some work when I was a fellow at Toronto where we, um, anyone who presenting with a stable slip, we actually did uh, MR before uh, taking them to the OR to pin them. And in those groups, we already found significant cartilage delamination and label pathology. Mm-hmm. So uh, e- even even at presentation, uh, they clearly have significant damage to the anterior hip. Yeah, interesting condition that we clearly haven't figured out all the way. But um, this seems like an important step to me. So with that, why don't we move on to our quote-unquote lightning round and talk about some other articles briefly that have come out. Anyone want to kick us off? I think this one will be good. So this is titled Open Reduction of Medial Epicondyle Fractures in the Pediatric Population, Supine versus Prone Position. This is by lead author Sarush Baghdadi and uh, John Lawrence um, as a senior author from CHOP. So um, this is a retrospective review of 204 patients who got ORIF of an isolated medial epicondyle fracture, and 60% of them were done supine, and 40% were done prone. Um, this was surgeon decided the approach, but they just did a direct comparison. I'll just give you the results, and then we can discuss what we prefer. So they actually thought that prone would be faster, but they found that the tourniquet time was the same, and the in-room time was actually longer for prone. Complications such as non-union stiffness, ulnar nerve palsy, and rural hardware were not associated with positioning, and they were all pretty low in their incidence. And they conclude that there's really no quantifiable improvement in doing these prone over supine, although that has been the recent trend at their institution to do them prone. Interestingly, they tracked what each surgeon was doing, and they found that any surgeon that tried it prone continued to do it that way. So they all preferred doing it and maybe found that easier. And I would say once I did it that way, I've continued to do it that way whenever I can. Um, But the data doesn't back up that it's any 
any better. In fact, it seems to be slower in terms of turning the room over. So my question to you all is, what position do you prefer to do this operation in? And um, any idea why the results want to support the prone fans? Maybe we'll start with our guests. I've, uh, I've done it both ways. I, I certainly do the majority of them in the, in the supine position. Um, I guess I'm not surprised that the in-room, outer room uh, was a little bit longer with the prone. It's a little bit more of a, more of a setup and some anesthesiologists aren't uh, necessarily too keen on the, on the prone positioning for a variety of reasons. So that finding doesn't surprise me, but the tourniquet time uh, surprises me because I thought the whole reason to, to go prone was that it should make your reduction so much easier. You know, when you're in that hammer lock position, you're relaxing the flexor pronator mass. And a few cases I've done prone, it is a fairly uh, straightforward uh, uh, reduction. Uh, in my hands, uh, the, the imaging is a bit more of a challenge. So I, I feel I get a good reduction, but then trying to get our implant in position, we're doing it a little bit um, with a little bit less image guidance than we typically would. So maybe that's where that extra time come, comes into play. So I don't know. I've done it both ways, but the vast majority certainly have, has been not too fine. Dr. Logan, any thoughts to add? Uh, why fix them at all would be the first thought. Um, second, <laughs> <laughs> second thought would be um, I, I, I would I always do them supine because it's easier on the anesthetist and the and the OR staff. Fair enough. Out of the four of us uh, early adopters, who's doing them prone here? Carter, Julia. I prefer to do them prone, but um, as a very junior attending, I was uh, thoroughly shamed by our, anest our anesthesiologists, and so I've only been doing them supine. Wow, okay. okay. Um, Ron prefers supine being a spine surgeon. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, you, you'd think I prefer prone being a spine surgeon, but since I like anterior work, I like the lateral position quite a bit, so take your thing. That was a great discussion. I can go to one that I, I think is is sort of... Um, maybe not as relevant to our Canadian friends, but uh, we've had some changes in our billing and documentation stuff related to some some governmental and changes to how we have to document recently in the U.S. And so one of the things that, that I found interesting, we've got a paper about pediatric orthopedic surgeon time utilization in clinic, a pilot study. I think the interesting thing about this, this article out of JPO is they actually had a medical student whose entire job was to watch somebody work in clinic and document exactly how much time doing exactly what they do. Um, and they looked at different things, including time with the patient, time with staff, time listening to the resident presentations, time teaching, time multitasking, time dictating, and time in the EMR. And um, not surprisingly, uh, they found that an incredible amount of time was spent on the EMR, that they actually spent more time in the EMR than they did with the patient. And uh, it was it was about 35% uh, of the time with the patient. Um, and one of the interesting things, I think, was take a wild guess as to how much time, percent of time, people spent listening to the resident. Anybody, anybody at all. If, if we're going at 35% of their time was spent with the patient, and I'll go ahead and give you the 7% um, of time was spent dictating, and 5% uh, of the time was spent multitasking. 1% because the rest was all multitasking. <laughs> 36. I was always taught that one sentence, you're allowed one sentence. 
Yeah, that's that. I think it probably works out to about that because uh, 4% of the time was spent listening to the resident presentation. So um, I thought that was the biggest takeaway from this. Um, where, where was a study performed? Because I think that they just have their residents really well trained to be succinct. From Penn State. So, uh, William Henricus, Douglas Armstrong, Jeremy Silver, and Melanie Patterson. So um, congratulations to Penn State on a very interesting study. Uh, all jokes aside, I think the the key here is that we spend a lot of time with the EMR and not a lot of time with the patients. And hopefully things will continue to change for the better so that our documentation doesn't have to be so exhaustive in order to get reimbursed for the time that we do spend. Check that well, one yeah. out if you want some more fun stats. It sounds a little worse in the U.S. than in Canada, but but we did a, a similar look at things in, in our clinic with some industrial engineers. We went through a lean quality improvement process for our clinic, and we did kind of time stamp uh, all the different um, uh, steps along the way from the time the patient arrives at the hospital to the time that they left. Um, we didn't quite get into the details of uh, how long we listened to the residents for, and I think we probably listened to them a little bit longer than that, at least some of us might. The, uh, you know, the time that, that we spent um, seeing the patient was, you know, roughly about 50% of the time that the patient's encounter was from the time they kind of got in the room to the time that they, they left the room, that about half of that time was spent with a provider, which wasn't too bad. They weren't sitting around the room for very long. And then similarly, the time that we had booked for their visit, about half that time was with a provider. So I think we're, we're doing okay um, with, with our processes here, lots of room for improvement, but you know, we don't have a, a quite as sophisticated EMR as you, you guys do. It sounds fairly painful what, uh, what you have to go through sometimes. Yeah, and I think um, ultimately, I think we're, we're going to have to get better at documenting quicker and spending more time with patients. And hopefully as our EMRs improve and as our, our uh, documentation requirements for billing improve, I'm hoping that we can be able to do that because I can, I can tell you that um, pretty much everyone is burned out on the amount of time we spend writing notes. So thank you for that discussion. On the topic of time management, if actually first question for our guests do either of you know where Andorra is, the country? No, sorry. I know where Angola is, but not Andorra. Okay. How about our hosts? Andorra, the country? Good. I, I will no teach you all something. Is <laughs> it is a small country, the 11th smallest, that is centered between France and Spain in the Pyrenees Mountains. And one of the authors practices both in France and Andorra, where they speak Catalan, so a little geography for everyone. So this study also looking at time management. If the two of you are our guests could use a single PRO, a single question that was validated for outcomes after ACLs or outcomes after knee surgery in general, would you trust it versus some of the other validated pediatric knee outcome studies? A single question. A single question. I need to know what the question was. Yeah, yeah, it's a hard pill to swallow, right? So, so this study was the pediatric simple knee value, a simple patient-reported outcome measure for the knee. And what they did is they used the the PDIKDC and the Lishom knee function scores and evaluated their single question, which was, "How would you rate your knee today as a percentage of normal, zero to one hundred percent scale, with one hundred percent being normal?" And they used it in post-ACL patients as well as normals to validate the various um, outcome measures and showed that it, that it was just as valid, 
that it was sensitive and identifying improvements as well as differentiating between pathology and normal. So it's uh, one of the SANE measures, which kind of is a single question aimed at multiple joints. It's been val- invalidated in adults and shoulder and other places, but this is the first to validate that single question in a pediatric population for the knee. So interesting. And on the time management side, they showed that surgeons in orthopedics spend up to 800 hours a year, which roughly equates to about $40,000 at the time, looking through PROs and figuring out PROs. And so if we can narrow those all down to a single question, not bad. I think that just shows how simple the knee and shoulder are. You know, these sports surgeons, they should work on something difficult like the spine. Um, should we keep going, Carter? We, we should, but first we need to say goodnight and thank you uh, to Ron, who has to peace out for an impressive 10 p.m. his time conference call. I don't know if you have another oh one scheduled goodness. at 11, but oh, no, that's, I am that's impressed that's by your work ethic. All right. Thanks very much. Uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun. Take thank care, you. guys. Thanks thank for you joining for us. joining us. Yeah. Pleasure Bye. to have you. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So, Carl, if you have time, I think we have a few more papers we're going to run through quickly. And if not, no pressure. For sure, I'll, I'll stay. All right. So this is a study from JBJS of this month called Classifying Ischial Tuberosity Avulsion Fractures by Ossification Stage and Tendon Attachment. It's from lead author Brendan Mitchell and senior author Andrew Pinnock from uh, Rady Children's Hospital. So they took a retrospective review of 45 adolescent ischial tuberosity fractures and they characterize the demographics, radiographic appearance, and also the treatment outcomes. And this is unique because this has been do- done quite a bit in adults, but uh, with the apophysis in children, you would imagine that the fracture patterns and those characteristics might be different. So they actually defined two types of fractures. Uh, there's a type one fracture that occurs in the younger patients, and it includes the more lateral apophysis, which is the insertion of the semimembranosus, and then the conjoint or the semi-T and biceps femoris insertions, or origins, excuse me. The type 2 fracture includes that lateral apophysis, but it's also moving more medial into the uh, adductor magnus origin. And so it's a larger fragment that comes off. Um, that typically is going to be larger fragment, older patients, um, and sometimes more displacement. And so um, I was going to seek your guys' guesses at what the overall non-union rate was in their group of 45. Um, so what do you think the non-union rate is of this injury? And they only characterize that for the ones that they followed over six months. There's a little bit of a, a follow-up bias there. Um, and then was there a difference between the different types, these larger fragments and the smaller fragments? Carl, you're a guest of honor. Any guesses at how often these things actually heal from the ischial tuberosity avulsions? Is that symptomatic non-union? Uh, they just say radiographic past six months. Okay, so radiographic non-union and an apophysis. Yep. Kind of an interesting concept. Um, 5%. <laughs> Five percent. Anyone else? I'll go with ten. Radiographic non-union, thirty-four percent. I'll go thirty percent, and I'll go that there was more with the type twos. Yep. So you took the bait. So total non-union rate of fifty-six percent, and the there was a difference. There wasn't statistically a difference between type one and type twos. It was probably over or underpowered, but. 33% of those type 1s had non-unions. 78% of these type 2s had non-unions. So there does seem to be a distinct difference in how old you are and what the size that fragment that comes off is. And um, that might at least make me start thinking a little more about fixing these type 2s. They did have four of these non-unions and the type 2s end up getting a secondary surgery to fix it because it was symptomatic later on. Um, So that's a significant number of of their non-unions. 
Also another so, tally uh, for me. Oh yeah. Okay. Sorry. I'm, I'm not even keeping score anymore with you. All right. I'll I think, take the I, next one. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Carter. I was just, I was just going to say, I think that's useful um, because it's certainly a lot easier to fix them acutely than down the line. So it's good to think about that and make that decision. If you're going to fix it, if you got to displace type two. Carter, is that a, a magic eight ball that you're asking for answers for these questions in your hand? What is that? Yeah, I'm tired of losing to Josh with all these uh, <laughs> with all these guesses. I thought I'll take all the help I can get. All right, Doctor Logan, if you have a child with a septic hip, would you consider a double lumen catheter as adequate drainage, barring other major surgical or barring other major medical complications or other? Uh, currently, no. But do I think that's worth studying? Yes. Okay. How about uh, any other uh, any other hosts who have done this or tried this or would consider this? What do they do exactly? So uh, this is a group down of Israel who they take them to the operating room and they do a a needle into the hip joint and then dilate it out and put a double lumen catheter into the hip joint. They then irrigate it, which obviously as they irrigate, they're able to aspirate the fluid out as well. So they report on just five patients. It's not a big group, but five patients who they treated with this method over a 10-year period, all of who had resolution of their infection, no further sequelae, no further surgery, no further complications related to their septic hip. I'm I'm kind of old school on these. I open all of them. I don't scope them. And um, I would probably feel the same way about using the catheters is I want to get it get it out. And especially the kids that, you know, have that really thick purulent material in the hip. I just, I, you can't convince me that you're going to get that out of a tube. Yeah, I guess I was actually thinking of this study this weekend when I went in and washed out a septic hip. I do it through about a two centimeter incision over the front of the hip. Um, that's, I can't imagine has much negative sequelae possibilities, but you know, this is a, it's still in the OR. They're still under anesthesia. You're using fluoro. You're doing a fair bit of work to do this. It seems like a long hike for a short slide. And what are they doing with the double lumen? Are they doing serial irrigations afterwards? No, in this study. So I've actually done that and seen that and, and, you know, sick people in the ICU and things like that. But no, this is a single event. So they wash it out. And I think they put between 250 and 350. I may be wrong on that, but something like that um, fluid through it, just washed it out. They leave it in to allow it to continue to drain until it has less than 10 or 20 cc's of drainage over a period of time, which most of the patients, um, it was in for another couple of days. Um, but they don't go back and re-irrigate or re-wash it out like on the floor or anything. That's an interesting idea. I mean, I think the advantage is that, you know, fluid does continue to accumulate there, that you can do a repeat aspiration or an anti-irrigation if you left it. Granted, there's secondary infection risk. Um, yeah, I agree with Dr. Logan worth studying, but I may not adopt it yet. I don't know if I'm going to adopt it, but we did a fair amount of similar things in residency. I had one attending, uh, who I learned a ton from who was very progressive, uh, with some sort of minimal approaches and local antibiotics. Um, he would do a lot of injections with antibiotics, you know, not just the usual systemic antibiotics that we give at the beginning of surgery, but injecting into open fractures or septic joints, like you said, especially in sick patients. And we would do stuff like this, uh, in sicker adults, never in a kid and leave in the catheter and then do a local antibiotic wash every eight or 12 hours. And I know his work was very influenced by work out of Israel. Uh, I'm not sure, but presumably the same group or uh, same school of thought, at least. So I don't know if I'm going to make the transition right now, but I'm, I'm, I think this makes a lot of sense. And I do think decompressing 
and running some fluid through through a tube would probably do the trick most of the time. I think if you could streamline it and so you can do it not under general anesthesia, not in the OR, you could certainly make an argument that it's slightly less invasive than a small incision in an operation, but uh, to do it in the operating room, that probably takes longer. They they waited till they got culture pathology back this weekend. I would have been waiting in the OR for 45 minutes before we got anything back. So I just moved ahead with open irrigation since it was purulent fluid that I got out. So I think if you could streamline this and it's, it's an interesting idea, which is why we're talking about it today on lightning round. Beautiful. Um, so my next one is the effect of proximal anchor choice during distraction based surgeries for patients with non-idiopathic early onset scoliosis. Um, so this was a study from the PSSG and I think interesting in the sense of, you know, what ultimately is going to give you a better outcome, if anything, between rib and spine based proximal anchors. Um, so question for, I guess the group, I don't do any spine. So, uh, this is a very academic discussion for me, for, for those of you who do, uh, what are you? using uh, for your proximal anchors spine routinely yep to the spine but not necessarily screws Um, i kind of like the idea of hooks and bands which i kind of learned from dr sanders at unc also spine Cool. Well, it turns out, based on this study, that uh, at a minimum five-year follow-up, distraction-based surgeries increase spine length for patients with non-idiopathic early-onset scoliosis, regardless of proximal anchor type. So I think this supports that you can use whatever you want. Um, they did have some some differences. Um, the the rib-based group actually achieved a more relative increase in spine length compared with the spine-based group at the later lengthenings. Other than that, there really wasn't a significant difference in their outcome. So I think this supports that whatever you're doing, it, it's probably good, and uh, you're probably getting some lengthening uh, no matter what you use. Then we can all keep arguing about it. That's terrific. <laughs> exactly. And I'll just continue to grab my uh, popcorn bowl and watch it happen. <laughs> and and credit to, to Ron, who's no longer on the line, who was one of the uh, co-authors of that study. Yep, absolutely. All right. I think that is a, a good stopping point. Dr. Logan, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I've learned a lot of things and uh, have some more to think about. And we hope we can have you back at some point. Thanks a lot. Great study. Thanks, Dr. Logan. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.